aspects of fundraising. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the Fundraising School, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Phil Purcell. Phil is a longtime fundraiser with significant expertise in the legal aspects associated with leading a nonprofit organization, including fundraising. And his advice and expertise are sought around the country and around the world. And we're so fortunate to have him on our faculty and as the author of Chapter 3, Legal Aspects of Fundraising in Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, Volume 5. And Bill, thanks so much for being with us on the First Day Podcast. Thank you for having me, Bill. I'm delighted to be here. Now, before people turn this podcast off, because you and I have worked with fundraisers a long time, and they're interested in the techniques and help me identify donors and to meet with donors and make the ask, teach me how to write that grant proposal, how do I listen for planned giving opportunities, and then we say, you know, before you get to all that, there are these legal aspects of fundraising. In fact, we put it in chapter three, so you get to it before you get to all those other things. Why is it important for fundraisers to be aware of the legal aspects of fundraising? Well, Bill, we do live in a, in a society governed by laws. Uh, sometimes we think of them as stop signs, sometimes as yield signs. Uh, but the point is that obviously we do um, become aware that there are parameters around what we can say or do in all manner of, of the way we do our work, whether it is fundraising or other issues in the nonprofit organizational sphere. Um, so I think that the longer one is experienced in fundraising and participates, for example, in the, in the course curricula, the fundraising school, they're introduced to a variety of, of laws that, that have some degree of impact on their work. And everybody, of course, we often try to describe both ethical and legal standards, um, and we promote adherence to both. Um, and at some level, of course, there are ethical matters that also are legal requirements. Uh, violating the law is also an ethical violation. But the point is that I would say that um, for experienced fundraising uh, professionals, uh, the longer you're in the business, the more you are attentive to these issues, and you definitely uh, understand it's important to comply both at state and federal level. Phil, there are some folks, even within the philanthropic sector, who don't fully appreciate the sophistication of fundraising and that fundraising is a profession. What does it say about fundraising that it's not off to the kids' table, that this is part of the management of a nonprofit organization, that a whole body of law at the state and federal level is dedicated to making sure we're fundraising legally and ethically? What does that say about our practice of fundraising? Well, it, it, it does reflect the, the fact that as a society, we have greatly supported philanthropy. Um, and it's, it's a large business enterprise now, you know, billions of dollars. And whenever billions of dollars changes hands, whether it's from a donor to a charity or in any other context, uh, there sometimes is a concern about uh, certain violations, inappropriate behavior, theft, um, uh, compliance with practices that assure transparency, openness, uh, accuracy of information, fulfilling donor intent, uh, not doing a bait and switch, let's say. I mean, a whole host of things. And unfortunately, there is that adage, a few bad apples the, uh, spoil the barrel uh, of the rest of the apples. And that's certainly the case in the nonprofit sphere. We, we've had some examples of bad actors uh, in the nonprofit space, as there are, of course, in the for-profit 
sector of our society and the governmental sector, to be clear. And so, you know, we hold such high regard for the importance of trust and fundraising. That, that trust that nonprofits hold with our donors and with the broader society, uh, that's the wellspring from which all good philanthropy flows. And so the laws are there to set a basic framework to make sure that the trust is not violated. Phil, that's a great point. Fundraising happens at the speed of trust. And a lot of activities and behaviors and mindsets go into developing that trust, including being able to say to our donors and our funders, we are operating legally, both here in our state and following national laws as well. And you know, one of those laws talks about that nonprofits don't have owners. So if we don't have owners in the nonprofit sector, who holds the ultimate legal authority? Yeah, that's a that's a great way to look at it. You know, the way I like to look at it is the general public owns the, the, the nonprofit world. That is, in the for-profit space, you have closely held businesses where a family or a small group of partners or whomever own the business. We have large corporations where shareholders, stockholders own the business. Well, in, in the nonprofit space, the way I've always looked at it is that the general public, and maybe even more specifically, our donors are, in a sense, our shareholders. They are to whom we are accountable. And so at the state level, legally, uh, the attorney general of each state is empowered to make sure that trust is, is fulfilled and they have legal standing to represent all donors and the general public if a nonprofit is seen as violating any particular rule at the state level. And of course, as everyone is aware, the Internal Revenue Service has a somewhat similar role at the federal level. They can audit our organizations if we uh, supply misleading or inaccurate 990 returns, uh, if we are found to be uh, providing excess benefits, uh, involvement in political campaign activity or the like, that is a violation of a federal law. So in any event, uh, our responsibility to the public, I would say is somewhat similar to a private business's uh, responsibility relative to their shareholders or, or closely held owners. And in fact, to become a nonprofit organization, we need to declare a public service mission. And one way that we can demonstrate that we're onto something real and valid and credible with that public service mission is we attract a large number of donors. It's, it's a validation that uh, we haven't just made something up or, or noticed something insignificant, but this is a, a real issue leading to uh, you know, helping people and, and improving community life. You mentioned the attorney general at the state level. You mentioned the IRS uh, you know, at the federal level. And of course, there are legislatures and Congress and everybody's you know, laws and regulations and such. What about from the nonprofit side? Who has that legal authority? You talk about the boards of directors and their three duties as being a starting point of understanding the legal aspects of fundraising. Can you expand on that for us, please? I sure can. I, I'm a fan of Harry Truman for a variety of reasons as president, but he always had a saying on his desk that I adore, the buck stops here. And the way I think of it is the board of directors of a nonprofit corporation, and it would be the trustees of a charitable trust. Although most nonprofits are organized as nonprofit corporations these days, the buck stops with that board and um, they are accountable. Now, what's interesting is board members themselves also have legal standing to sue the organization. They are a carve out of the relatively small number of individuals who might have standing to bring a suit. So it's, it's that important, this role of the board, even a minority of one of a board, 
to have, let's say, a check and balance on what's going on. Um, but as you alluded, there are three legal duties under the laws of the states, duty of care, duty to be prudent in the management of the organization, taking into account the facts and circumstances, the laws, the ethical standards that are at play with any decision that's, that's being made. Uh, there's a duty of loyalty uh, to put the interest of the nonprofit first ahead, not only of your personal interest, most individuals think of duty of loyalty as and it is implemented by a conflict of interest policy uh, to avoid using your position as a board member to leverage personal financial gain. For example, you're an investment advisor and you highly influence the board to invest some or all of its reserve fund at your financial investing firm generating a fee for you. That's an example of a conflict, a violation of duty of loyalty. There's another duty of loyalty to, let's say, not put the interest of one nonprofit that you're on the board of ahead of another one. So many people serve on multiple nonprofit boards. So you're at board meeting A on Monday night and you're talking about what? The need to raise more money. And you hear about, say, Bob. You know, Bob is wealthy, he's single, he wants to leave a legacy. Somebody needs to go talk to Bob. Then at board meeting B on Wednesday night, what are they talking about? We need more money. And without thinking, you chime in and say, well, you know, Somebody's got to go talk to Bob. I hear he's loaded and wants to leave a legacy. Well, now you divulge confidential information from board A to board B, and that's a violation of duty of loyalty. So it sometimes comes to play, even in the fundraising context. And the final one is duty of obedience. That is being true to the purpose. You know, you mentioned that nonprofits need to have a purpose. Some, and most organizations have a mission statement too. And I I describe a mission statement as more of an articulation for the public of a more pithy, let's say, motivational, inspirational uh, summary of the broader purpose of an organization. But sometimes organizations have what are called mission drift. You know, they drift away from that purpose. And, and that's a violation of the duty of obedience. So three very important duties under state law. And that's how this chapter starts. The chapter continues with information on state government. Again, nonprofits incorporate first with their state government before they go to the federal government for approval. Phil highlights some key aspects of federal government uh, regulations and laws, and then concludes by, by talking about donors, all in the third chapter, legal aspects of fundraising in achieving excellence in fundraising, fifth edition. Uh, and Phil, as we conclude here, you know, again, we're not saying fundraisers need to go to law school. What we are saying is they can't also be at ground zero. What advice would you have for them as they just continue their professional development to remain mindful of the legal aspects of fundraising? Well, you know, continuing education is a very important thing. And I would say the courses of the fundraising school is a great way to go on that regard. Um, I teach, as you know, the plan giving three-day course, but there are other courses in the fundraising school. And at various points in those courses, mention is made of legal rules, parameters, and ethical rules and parameters as well. Uh, one can also, of course, uh, in a, in a, in a, as, a, as a working adult, uh, take the master's in philanthropy class from the Lilly School. Uh, it's a wonderful program. You can even do it online. I teach a course on the law of nonprofits online, uh, and that's a great way to have continuing education. Uh, you know, participating in your local association of fundraising professionals, or National Association of Charitable Giving Councils, uh, guest speakers uh, often uh, address topics relative to the 
to the law. And of course, most nonprofits have, let's say, an independent legal counsel who's available to ask uh, questions of. Um, and of course, reading, you know, articles, blogs, websites. The problem with the web, of course, is be careful what you read. Make sure you're, you're reading from an accurate source. So anything, for example, that the Lilly School uh, puts on its website, obviously, I highly trust. And of course, recruiting legal advice, legal expertise to our boards of directors also can be important to help us uh, you know, try to head things off in advance and stay aware of these very important issues that Bill Purcell covers in the third chapter of Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, now in fifth edition, and Phil's chapter, Legal Aspects of Fundraising. That textbook is informing the curriculum of the fundraising school. We have our uh, public courses that are in person in more and more U.S. cities now. And of course, uh, we developed a strong online presence because of the health pandemic that continues to be robust, either recorded classes or live virtual classes, whichever works best for your schedule. And that leads to four different certificates that we offer. Now, our custom training, again, stronger than ever before, that we can tailor courses for your nonprofit in the United States, anywhere around the world. We have quarterly webinars and these weekly podcasts for free all available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the fundraising school, where you also can learn about that master's degree that Phil mentioned, the master's degree in philanthropic studies from the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. I'm always grateful when I have opportunities to work with our guest today, Phil Purcell. Our producers are Jennifer Boffman and Mike Anthony. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Thank you.